you know, we, I feel like we're the most relevant museum in the world to people's lives because this is the music we fall in love to. We have our hearts broken to. We walk down the aisle. We um, feel connected when we're lost. Like, that's rock and roll. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. And this is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. Lol, this is a very special episode. You have to tell everybody, where are you? You're not in Los Angeles. No, not in Los Angeles today. I am in Cleveland, in Ohio, and I am at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we are here today with the, the CEO and president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Greg Harris. Greg. I might as well jump straight in with, you know, Greg, you've, you must have this thing when people are um, nominated uh, for inclusion. And, um, and, but you're collecting from many different areas of decades of uh, the development of rock and roll. When did it start for you? For the museum? For the, when, when, what does the hall start? Yeah, the hall, we're mm. now in our 27th year of being open as a museum. And by the way, 13 million people from mm. around the world have, have come to this place to connect with, uh, with all these great artifacts and stories. Uh, but really the concept is about almost 40 years old. And it started by a number of uh, music industry folks in New York. Um, the uh, founder of Atlantic Records, Ahmet Erdogan, who put out all that great New Orleans stuff, and the um, founder of Rolling Stone Magazine, Jan Winter, and a bunch of others. And they realized they wanted to do a special evening to honor music's own. And so they started doing an event in New York at the Waldorf in the ballroom. And they started inducting artists into this concept of, mm. uh, of a Hall of Fame. And it, it caught uh, a little bit of momentum and eventually, they, after a few years, they decided they wanted to build a museum. And they thought about building it in New York. They thought about other cities in a lot of places. Sort of got into the mix. And Cleveland jumped in and said, we want it here. We have a great legacy of rock and roll with, um, you know, a lot of touring bands came through. Bowie's first U.S. gigs were here. Hendrix, when he came back, was here. And then a great sort of concert business and, and fans here. And then they had the Alan Freed story of the man who in the early 50s uh, took, um, you know, rock and roll was a term used on records for years, but he really popularized the phrase and he started playing uh, rhythm and blues music and, and, um, and, and jump music and other stuff for a mixed uh, audience of, of, of black and white uh, young people and it just caught fire from there. So the Cleveland folks um, use that. They, they competed for it, they built this place, and in the last 27 years, 13 million people have come here to celebrate. Was it just uh, New York and Cleveland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. well, it was, um, so New York, Cleveland, my hometown, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, right. which we can okay. talk about. Yeah. Uh, New Orleans, where rightfully, maybe if any place can claim the, <laughs> yeah. the, the start yeah. of rock and roll. And then uh, Chicago was interested, San Francisco was interested, but wow. really the, the ones that made the strongest play were, were Philadelphia and Cleveland, and um, Cleveland won out, and here it is. 
And you got the same architect who uh, did the architect who designed the pyramid outside of the Louvre in Paris. Yeah. So, so you know, it's interesting. I told that you know our origin story in about you know thirty seconds, but that was probably eight years of of work. And uh, one of the catches was when Cleveland built the museum is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Foundation that started. It said you you need to hire I.M. Pay. Ah. He's the hottest architect going right now. Oh wow! Um, well, that was that was the that that was the prerogative they had to have that. Very much so. Yeah. And and then uh, they they took Pay, who was a jazz fan by the way. And they took him and flew him around to see the the Who and to see the Stones and to see a bunch of live music. And he said, you know, I get it. It's about energy. It's about energy and emotion. So he designed a very energetic building. When you look at it, it's moving in a lot of directions and has a lot of activity. Um, and then to your point about the Louvre, what what I really like to think about is that the Louvre is considered by many to be the the home of of Europe's great art mm. is the Louvre. You know, it has the Mona Lisa, it has all these other great pieces. We're the home of America's great art, rock and roll. Wow. Right. Sometimes I think that's a bit of a statement too, that when our museum was built, we were making a strong statement that rock and roll was worthy as an art form to have a significant museum okay yeah that makes sense that makes sense i mean you know living living as i do in in california that i see a lot of geary stuff everywhere you know like we have the walt disney mm -hmm. hall and stuff and they're beautiful but i think this is probably more appropriate mm -hmm. you know feels like it. yeah and, and at the time it was our our history was presented very much in a classic museum presentation with artifacts and exhibits and um and other other sort of classic ways to again almost legitimize rock and roll as being worthy of a museum and since that time we've now blown the doors off that and we've become a bit more experiential a little bit more immersive the music's louder um and uh you um it, it it's it's in our mind we want to be you know we i feel like we're the most relevant museum in the world to people's lives because this is the music we fall in love to, we have our hearts broken to, we walk down the aisle, we um, feel connected when we're lost. Like, that's rock and roll. And while other museums are terrific and I love fine art and, and other things, it doesn't speak to your soul the same way this music does. Mm. Well, I suppose the truth is this is like, this is the museum of the people as opposed to the museum of, you know, the intellectuals and, uh, you know, like the uh, hoi polloi, if you like. But um, yeah, no, it feels like that very much. So I, I, I like that, that atmosphere. And, you know, and I've been here an hour, you know, so I haven't seen anything. Well, I've seen my exhibit, but I haven't seen anything much else. So. What's your exhibit, Lol? What have you got in there? Oh, it's, it's just it's just something I, I you know, loaned the museum, like the, um, the outfit I wore in Let's Go to Bed video, you know, so that's in there. In, in addition, Lol, we also yes. walked through the Hall of Fame. You may want to. Oh share yeah, that. we walked through the Hall of Fame, which which was very very emotional for me because you start off, you know, at the beginning with Chuck and all the people, and wind round, and somewhere about 2019, it's me and Bob and and the boys, and uh, wow. it, it you have to see it. it kind of blows your mind to think about it, you know. There's only 300 and how many? 51. 351 bands in this thing. And it's here forevermore. Yes. Well, you know, it's gonna. It's it's really kind of. It's a lot more uh, affecting. Yeah. Than I thought it would be. You know, because you know, 
that's the way I think about things. As you say, a lot of the things you've mentioned, are, are even though we're a long way from the roots of it, maybe, in, in Britain, where we both started, it, it's kind of magic language, isn't it? You know, everybody we admired when we were kids has probably featured there. What's the earliest exhibit? What's the oldest exhibit you have in, in the museum? You know, some of the roots of, of rock and roll, some of the blues and gospel and country stuff is pretty remarkable to actually have, you know, a, a Muddy Waters red Fender guitar that knowing that Muddy Waters is, you know, the, the guy that uh, the Rolling Stones took their name from one of his songs and mm -hmm. they, they just wanted to visit, you know, chess records um, and, uh, and and meet Muddy Waters and, and like their, their life was complete. Right, uh, right. And so there's some really neat stuff in those those early days that that sort of roots stuff that's remarkable, um, and then um, you know there's other things throughout the years. That the challenge, to be frank, is that it's uh, in addition to the 351 inductees, it, it's a big story, hmm. and to tell that story, there are so many artists that had a hand in it, um, and you think about even our our sort of modern punk new wave area right where you you have to somehow go from television and patty smith yeah uh through everybody else yeah and you could have an entire museum just about that yeah yes you could well maybe that's you know a, a new annex you know maybe me and budgie start to raise some money for the new <laughs> annex and we'll you know we can have i always wanted a building called after me you know so we could do that perfect yeah. perfect yeah It's interesting to me that um, I've seen, you know, I've traveled around America a lot and I, I've been to some studios. I've been to all the other places that are supposed to be, you know, indicative of, of what we do. And you hit a very good point there. Like, you know, like the, the, the Stones wanted to come and see Muddy Waters, right? So my brother in the 60s, when all those guys came to England... That's what we heard. And my brother would go to all those kind of shows. and So he had a love. I mean, he still, you know, he gets in his old van and plays John Lee Hooker still and stuff, you know. Perfect. So, so it informed us growing up because I'm sure Budgie will tell you, one of the first ways we learned to play music was we would go off to uh, Sunday lunchtime at the pubs and there'd be a bunch of like, you know, Peter Green wannabes playing the blues and that's how we all learn you know we would sort of they'd let us sit in you know like we're 14 years old and we're like well I, I can play a bit of a drum beat you know and they'd let us play and so it really is I think to me what this whole thing speaks of is that constant back and forth that's been going on for like you know 50 60 years with like you know Li little bit of England a little bit of America and then backwards and forwards and it informs each other and obviously there's influences from all over the world but mm -hmm. that that's that's the engine right there you know i watched uh, a little bit of the the beatles uh, exhibit you have and uh, i was telling greg every english drummer and that, that's me and you right me me included i know who, who you're gonna say here we all owe something to ringo yeah. <laughs> my brother came back for he said my brother came home one night and he said uh I've got a drumstick for you. And it wasn't even a full drumstick. It was a tip of a drumstick, a nylon tip. And he said, I found it on the floor in the cavern. 
It must have been Ringo's. It could have been anybody's. <laughs> but to me, it was Ringo's. Yeah, and I got that little tip of a nylon stick and I played the calf skin of an old banjo with no strings on it. <laughs> that was lying around the house and that was kind of the first drum. Yeah. The, the, a banjo. The tip of that Crazy. became your Excalibur sword. <laughs> That's so cool. Absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, the other interesting part of this, you've both referenced in in, in short order, you know, your 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 family, your your brothers, and your influences and your connection. Yeah. And, and that's part of this. It, it it it's a thread that that pulls you through those years, and it's um it, it's a constant, um and it's there's a magic to that. I think there's a magic to the. There's to the, definitely a magic to it because I you know I just saw the that they've got a film by Jonathan Dem, and it has basically all 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 the people that you know doesn't have us in yet but you know it will just watching that i had a smile on my face the whole time so greg your your roots i'm i'm you know i've done a little bit of reading and you because uh, vinyl and rare records are very much a thing we all still look out for when we're tra- when we were able to tour around pre-pandemic. I know that on tour with the people I've been working with, we we'd come home with big boxes full of vinyl. In Philadelphia, you, you, is this kind of uh, the beginnings of your, if you like, meeting the the record recording world? Yes, you know, um, I'll back up just a hair from that, then we'll get to Philadelphia. But uh, growing up in that part of the world, um, we had a, a real treasure. And uh, uh, Budgie, I would have seen you there in the early 80s, but a place called City Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, a crazy promoter that booked um, breaking bands and, and up-and-coming bands, and we would all go there. And if you had a good fake ID, you were in. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and then um, being really interested in music, finding a bit of my, my tribe – of the people that were at the shows and the people that were, um, you know, a little bit outside of the, of the mainstream. And then I moved to Philadelphia and I worked in a bookstore that had a record department, the used department. And the other clerk and I realized the owner was making all the money uh, and paying us $2 an hour. So we opened up our own store and that store is the Philadelphia record exchange. It was yeah. at Fifth and South Street, um, and I'm pleased to say my original partner. I I had it for a couple of years and sold my half. He still has it. It's still going strong. Wow! And when and when you meet, you know, touring musicians and artists that are that love this, they all know the Philadelphia Record Exchange, and it's a uh, it's a it's a stop where um, people tend to find what they're looking for. At least they find the community that welcomes them. Yes. It was the it was the network. Every musician in town hung out there, but we would even get things forwarded if a band was on tour. Their distributor or their family might send something to the store, right? And they'd pick right. it up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a. I thought it was a, just a, a wonderful community. Yeah, people that worked in that world. Many of them are still involved in music, and yeah. it's really pretty fun to cross paths. You've um, you you brought up a point. There's something that I I, I, I remembered. One one of the big 
uh, stalwarts of that for me was a chap called Bill Wiseman, who it was from Dallas and run Bill's Records. He he passed away, I think, uh, last year or two. But Bill, Bill didn't leave that record store. Literally, I mean, he was at the ca- he he passed away at the counter. You know, he he lived in this store. He had every record that you could ever want, and he had a warehouse full of the ones that you didn't want as well. And um, you know, he he was there. I think I came saw him there sometime in the early eighties. Still there, like up until a couple of years ago, you know, and that was his whole whole existence, you know, and uh, it was wonderful. I did a I did an event for my book there, you know. I said, Bill, can I do an event at your store? And he's like, Yeah, come on by. And uh, it's just, it's just one. That's that's the thing that's missing for me and Budgie. We talk about this. Mm. That's the thing that's missing from the internet, you know, because you can get everything on your phone straight away, but you can't get that feeling. Yeah, you know, there is something there, and it's it's interesting, right? And I'm trying to fight the old, our way was the better way, but there was something about hearing it being played there and, and talking to people and, and being together. Now, the balance of that is, right, you could be sitting, you know, at your kitchen table, or a 16-year-old kid could be at their table, and they could type in the cure, yeah. and they might get led to... to to, to Susie or they might get led to the gun club and then with another click they're seeing Sun House mm-hmm. yeah like that's wild it's it's wild it's also true though that the old way has a, a real good pull because you know uh, my son came and played in, in Cleveland the other night and I watched the audience you know and that's the same thing that I saw happening with us 40 years ago you know people they connect that's their tribe that's who they want to go and see that's who they believe in that's the music gets through to them very clearly that way and uh it it was it was a very amazing thing to see for me that it's still you know the same thing is going on and it's you know what they say rock and roll will never die there you go that's it it's right there I got an interesting thought just came into my head. What? Because Greg, you worked also at the the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum as well. That was that was your gig prior to this one, I think. How do how do the two worlds? Do they have a similarity? Obviously, fanaticism. They have the collecting aspect of it as well. Baseball in the U.S. is kind of a civil religion, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so. Uh, What's what's interesting about the two places? There, there's a lot of commonality in that. Um, one, we are both, you know, educational organizations that tell stories, right. and we're we're kind of held in the public trust. The people care about this stuff dearly. Mm. There's always uh, fans that know more about artists than we do, mm. and there's the same with baseball. Um, and uh, y- you know, it it cuts across generations, and it can be shared. And, and for for the the important part i think is that they they both contain these reservoirs of memory and you can connect and remember moments of who you're with and where you were um baseball um has a long and storied history in america it goes back to the 1870s and um the museum there is a bit of a you know it's a it's a pilgrimage place for people that grew up and frequently they make that pilgrimage and they talk about um their their parents or their grandparents and how they listened to radio together mm. and how they brought their children 
to games and it's across generations. Um, so that's a bit of the, the thread with, with Cooperstown, the Baseball Hall of Fame. And here you pick up on some of that. We're getting a little more generational. I doubt that our parents like the same music we did, guys. No. But uh, <laughs> today it's different. Yeah. And uh, the idea that there's a lot of emotion and connection tied to it. The other thing, just operationally, you know, we attract people from all over the country, all over the world, both places. We have inductees. Right. Uh, curiously, they have about 350 inductees as well. Oh, dear. <laughs> uh, it, it's a very elite group. Yeah. Um, and um, we I hope ha- there's some, some Dodgers in there from 2020 because we, we won back then. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. And, and the other part, I guess, on the civil religion side that I find fascinating is um, people wear the the their team logos. Yeah. They wear their cure T-shirts. Oh yeah. You know, you want to be, you get the, oh, the yeah. tattoos. Oh yeah. Like you want to be identified with that, and you're telling the world that this is where my loyalty lies. Yeah. And so when you see somebody with your same loyalty, yeah. a thousand miles from home, there's an instant bond, and you're you're together. So um, I think there's a lot of similarity, um, and um, they're both magical places that bring forth these connections in people, and it gets down to people not just the balls or the bats or the guitars or the drums. No, it's absolutely about people and it's about how you approach life. You know, um, my son, they had a band open for them the other day in New York and they're a young hardcore band. You know, they're all about 18 or 19 and the lead singer was didn't know that Gray, you know, is my son and they're wearing a Cure shirt and he's like, okay, yeah, you know, hi. You know, and he sent me a film of it, you know, because... It's like, it's like, it's the communication. It blows my mind. I mean, we were talking about this the other week on Curious Creatures. I mean, but we, we were talking with uh, Will Sargent from Echo and the Bunnymen. And he was saying, isn't it weird that, you know, people like our music 40 years on. And like, remember when you started, you know, 40 years before that was like Glenn Miller. And nobody, you know, except maybe the old folks would have liked that. But we meet kids that are 17, 18 and they still, you know, they love that kind of, they love the 80s. They love what's going on. I have a confession, Lol. Yeah. You love Glenn Miller. When I went to the pub, the, in the pub on the jukebox, because there was very little on the jukebox when I first went to the yeah. pub, uh, I, I'd look for like things like Glenn Miller in the mood because it was like class, real yeah. class music. Uh, the king of swing. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in Britain, certainly, as drummers, the drummers we grew up listening to yeah. came from the swing era. So even Bill Ward with Sabbath and Ian Pace with Deep Purple, they're swing guys. And it's it's really interesting, the differences, yeah. how these differences fed into different parts of the world and the development of them. But um, tell me, is there any crying in baseball? <laughs> there isn't supposed to be. No, it, it happens, so I, I understand. Wasn't that the Tom Hanks line to Madonna? Yes, yes, yeah. there was. There's no crying the two, in baseball. The, the, two, the, the, two, the two worlds met. And you, you've just amazed me, uh, Budgie. I, I didn't know you knew that, that particular fact. Wow. It is interesting to think about that. You know, you both reference the time and distance, right? Yeah. So you're you're making records ten years after Woodstock. Yeah. And only after, for us, a big reference point is the Beatles on that Ed Sullivan in the U.S. is 1964. 
So, so you're only um, 15 years after that. Yeah. And, and if you think about today, that yeah. horizon of where we are 40-something years later, it's, it's yeah. staggering. It's completely staggering. Today, I found out, you know, because my phone pops up things now and again, today is the 41st anniversary of Faith, you know, our, our third album. That blows my mind to think, you know, what I was doing 41 years ago, and I can kind of remember it, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, it condenses time. Somebody said to me once as well about being on stage, and I noticed this from uh, your film, that, uh, you know, you get on stage and you are, are, are ageless, you know, you have no age, you know, you might might be feeling, oh, I've got a bad back or something. You get out there on stage and it changes, you know, and I saw that in the film, you know, because there's like, you know, Tina Turner, who's, you know, very old now and stuff. And it's like, but no, she's not old there. She's forever young, you know, and I think that's part of the appeal to it, you know? Yeah. I, Well, I, as fans and, and watching, we feel it and... Um it's interesting because age isn't as perceptible when you're doing it together. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> but uh, I, to do it this this far on and for all of us to be sitting here, I think we're 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 on the right side of the grass. We're very fortunate. Absolutely. And, and every year and every year and every day that I'm on the right side of the grass, I'm very happy, you know, because I, it wasn't designed to be that way. And uh, the, you know, there's a lot, unfortunately there's a lot of people that have. Uh, you know, not with us anymore, but uh, me and Budgie are still here and thriving, you know? Definitely thriving, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, yesterday I was uh, doing that thing on YouTube. You know, you follow one link and you end up, you don't know what you're doing there. But I was watching the career, uh, th- it was the career of Tori Amos. Tori Amos on The Letterman Show. And she seemed to be on there from her yeah. breakthrough with Cornflake Girl, right through every year almost, certainly every two years, until we get to 2009 or so. And, and it was just that, watching the changes, watching the change in the show and, and the music of the house band and what they're playing and, what, and the way they're playing it and how it's changed from funk to rock to jazz to fusion. And, and in the middle is this continuing thread of some artist development, Tori Amos in this case, and it's a, it's a strange thing as well, where if you're growing up in music at the same time as another artist, you, you almost don't see them. It's almost like, a ho- not, I think a horse race is a bad analogy, but it's a bit like you've got your blinkers on, so you're not distracted. And so you don't really, you know, people say, do you remember though? And you, I say, I actually never heard anything, maybe one single. And of course, mm. you're on with the next album, or you're on to the next tour. And you like ships passing in the night quite often. And I suppose where you are is a kind of brings it all into focus. Right, right. And and part of the thing that me and Budgie have found the last, uh, you know, we, we, this is like our second season of, of Curious Creatures, that w- we zip the thread together for all of these things and for all of these people and we find different connections. I mean, we did one interview with uh, Mason Silver who was like Thresher's skate, skater of the year. You know, he's like 23, I think, you know, and we, our connection is because he was always talked to me about music because, you know, I know his, his parents and he's, he, said, um, he said, well, you know, I, I skate to you guys 
I put I put the cure on and and it skates to budgie a lot. It skates to you know said so because that's the music that I like and it, it and so that's the thing. It informs everything and it's it's all connected and that's what we we found more you know of, since doing this really. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I know I'm supposed to be the guest, but I just want to listen to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> that happens a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah that happens a bit. Yeah, we we end up to, you know sort of jabbering on. Well, interesting that um, using that uh, as a springboard, when you're putting together the, the huge shows that you have at the induction ceremonies, the last one I watched, I think, was probably with LOL. I certainly watched it a lot. The one with the Cure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with Roxy and the Cure. Yeah. Oh, with Roxy music and um, uh, what's his name. Lol, you were speaking to him that night. Um, Colin Bluntstone, is it? No. Oh, Colin Bluntstone. Yeah. Oh, the, the zombies. zombies. Yeah. They, they were all awesome. zombies. Because I was right at the front watching it. Yeah, it's great. Magical night. You know, it's a great example. When you when you talk with folks like you, that uh, fans think about your bands, mm. but your fans too. Like this made you. Yeah. And, and that absolutely. Mm. They have a dinner the night before uh, the the induction ceremony. I was at the dinner and and I was telling somebody the story that I've told you about Colin Bluntstone. How, you know, I when I was a thirteen year old boy, I, I heard a record that he'd made and I thought, oh my gosh, these lyrics. It, it proves to me you can write a song that's that's like has some emotional heart in it and it doesn't have to be sort of like this sort of misogynistic, you know, uh, rock stuff. And so when I was at the the dinner i i was telling somebody this story and they said well he's standing right behind you over there at the bar <laughs> so i went over to him and i i think i kind of surprised him a bit you know i think he was a bit uh, he wasn't quite sure what was going to happen because i slung my arm around him and said colin i have to tell you one of the reasons i'm here tonight is because of you and then i told him the story and he was like i'm overwhelmed i'm overwhelmed i don't have any words for this and then when they went up to get their award i sort of snagged him on the way up you know and and great gave him a big hug and uh, it was you know that's, that's what it's about to me you know you you meet your influence and you know you go on and you do something I mean it's like I was telling you earlier you know part of the reason that we ever did anything was because you know we saw bands like The Clash and we thought okay I can do that yeah. I can do that you know before then you have to remember in the 70s it was like disco and prog rock and a lot of time you know we weren't really going to do the disco stuff and the prog rock stuff was like, hey, how am I going to do Technically that? Technically Yeah, how am I going to do that? So, um, you know, we owe, we owe a lot to, uh, you know, those early days with, with punk and stuff. You know, really do. Well, and, and I, I would say that um, the reason you're honored here, Lol, is because in the last 40 years, a lot of others have looked at you as a major influence and that's that's the continuum that's the beautiful part. Well, that's uh that's that's making me making me uh, you know blush and it's uh but it's you know hum humbling and flattering at the same time thank you all true what is the the oldest relic that you have in the museum what what what's the the star of the show or the earliest star of the show yeah the earliest star there's um some of the root stuff i believe that we may have louis jordan's tenor saxophone wow which is pretty remarkable <laughs> and um we have uh, some things from howlin wolf that are quite early that are really cool and um 
Oh, you mentioned uh, his guitar. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so some of those things are, are super... Some of the things are unexpected, too. You know, we have um, a lyric sheet yeah. that became the, the start of Doc Palmer's writing Save the Last Dance for me. Uh, wow. You know, little things like that that just come alive because you, as soon as you say that, you hear the song. Right. And it connects. Uh, other, you know, there's even some things that um, we, as we were walking around earlier with, with Lowell, uh, we stopped and looked at a at a Joe Strummer guitar. Yeah, I was just thinking that 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 brought back a lot of stuff for me. You know, it would for you too. Yeah. Was it was it a dark green Telecaster? Uh, you know what? It's it's a it's a blonde one that's that's wood grain uh, Telecaster with uh-huh. uh, with some stickers on it that you would recognize in a second. And yeah. we did have the dark green one for a while. I, I believe that that is um, back with his family. Yeah, that one looks like it came out of the ocean. <laughs> it, it is like as gritty and authentic as it gets yeah. i think it went into the ocean a few times <laughs> yeah i remember seeing i remember seeing that guitar tossed off stage to johnny green who was at side stage catching it every night until the night that johnny was on the wrong side of the stage or joe threw it the wrong way <laughs> and it just uh, sailed off well, it, side it stage survived. and carried on going <laughs> and it survived you see i suppose if i i remember that first tour i was with the slits and the clash were doing the sort it out tour for yeah. the give them give them enough rope album, right. i think and i guarantee that everybody who was at all those big shows for that period in in britain will remember every aspect of that show you know and 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 we, we it's uh, th- those are the moments I suppose that could all pinpoint on an article in a in a case with wonderful lighting, and you give it yeah. some kind of resonance, and it's almost it almost is a religious experience. You say, well, yeah, these these things here, um, they are as you say, they're like religious artifacts, much more so than and not to you know denigrate it in any way at all but i went to memphis i went to sun and you know sun studios is like you know it's like a very horrible old studio in lots of ways and the guy was going oh you want to sing in elvis's mic and i'm like yeah it's okay it's all right really you know i don't need to do that i just want to have been here you know but um there are other other this here gives you much more uh you know, it's, it's much more perspective about what it really is and what it really means, you know. So hmm. that, that's really a, a good thing. Yeah, yeah, con- context, um, you know, we we all love things. And you're right, a well-lit guitar in the perfect space is, is powerful and beautiful. But that context that you just shared of, of that tour, those moments, right. and imagine if you see that same guitar and you hear that, splash of tommy gun right that right that that drum mm. roll at the beginning yeah. when you see it you are transported so quickly with that um and you're also energized and you remember that yep. <laughs> yes yeah full stop. i remember it like it was just Yep. So, and, and that's the the beauty of of this because it's the 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 items are the the pieces from making history but the art is a lot the art is the music and the art is alive and the art is um vibrant and relevant and you have this emotional lifetime 
is yeah. a reservoir connected to the the art. So the, yeah, that's you know I felt it just from you doing that vocal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, oh, lo- he does a lot of those. He's very good at those. Um. <laughs> It's the jukebox in the head. I'm really sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's the emotional connection that we we all like. Greg, thanks for looking after Lol, and uh, but thank you also for your time and just sharing a bit about what you do. It's an honor to be on your show, and uh, the music that both of you have made continues to inspire me and and so many you know millions of other people i'm honored to spend time with you guys thank you Greg. curious questions so this one is from Peter Ewald from Berlin, Germany. I know that place. You know that place? Yeah. You're not in there right now, are you? But uh, you know I'm not, that place. I'm not in Berlin, but I do have an, an attraction. You have a residence. I have a little reason to be there, yes. Right. So, Peter's first question is, hello, Lollenbudgie. Hello, Peter. <laughs> hello, Peter. Question one. Your first gigs in Berlin was when it was still a wall city. Mm. Any strange encounters with stone-faced East German border guards, fear of being gulagged, or something like that? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you have to keep going a bit further to get gulagged, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. entering the Russian steppes or the uh, Siberian out outback. Um, yeah. Oh, we, but we both know lol about yeah. that the, the 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 way into the walled city of you know west berlin through mm. uh, it, it only makes uh, sense now i'm doing the journey quite often and i've driven the journey quite often now to berlin of course berlin itself lies deep in the heart of the old east germany right almost like a little, little island wasn't yeah, it uh, it was like an island close really. to the polish border and so when you leave West Berlin, you enter Old East Germany and you travel a couple of hours south and west to, until you reach the Old East-West German border, which is kind right. of confusing. But that's but that is the from the East-West German border to the West Berlin checkpoint, you would have the long tunnel of access, the access tunnel by road. And we quite often on the tour bus would, as many bands did, drive down that road um, in the middle of the night when you were sleeping um, because it's long and dull and you can't stop. So right, and you can't you can't uh, go off of any of the the ramps off of the the side because there's there's a little guard post and they just turn you back and you get back on the road. I mean, I was found it fascinating because you could see in the distance like houses that look, it looked still like, you know, 1945 in certain places, like, you know, ev- when everything had changed, it kind of stopped there. So it was fascinating. 
to me and i i remember going on the train did you do the train ever no never Back never trained it in never never i don't think we ever flew into west berlin either we always uh, did the drive uh, i did i did the train a couple of times and you know they had if i remember correctly they they had you know the west german train to go into berlin and the east german train coming out or something like that well they, they both took one one you know, direction and so the west german train was a bit like you know an english train or an american train and it had a little buffet <laughs> with lots of nice things to eat and yes, stuff and it, was, yes, yes. it was warm and comfortable and the east german train if i recall was uh, a little more spartan it was well, it had the holes in the floor like the flintstones where you have to it was a bit like that it, it didn't have much heat going on and and there wasn't well there was there was warm coffee and you know goulash or something you know similar a salami sandwich and that was kind of it and it was actually an old west german train repainted in in east german colors so i remember you know we'd always try and think well do we want to can we try and get the journey where we're on the nicer train you know and that's not to say that you know it wasn't a good train but uh is that the one was different yeah you want the one with the nice the nice um toilet paper uh yeah hmm. yeah because it's a bit of a long journey actually on one of those journeys i learned how to play backgammon from clive timperley who was used to be in the 101ers with mr strummer oh yeah but um he had gone on from that and he was playing with the passions with uh barbara and stuff. Barbara so, Rogan, uh, yeah yes so he taught me clive taught me on that journey how to play backgammon and we played backgammon the whole tour so it's great well, the reason i mentioned the toilet paper is because on the drive of course when you, you yeah. when you do pull over or onto the service station you had to have money to buy toilet paper oh yes of course oh, yes. in those days it was phoenix and you wouldn't have any phoenix yeah. until you'd arrived where you were going so if you'd just come out of right. holland you had right. gilders and gilders yeah, wouldn't yes. buy you anything no. So what did you do? Did you go off in the bushes somewhere? No, you just couldn't go. You know, just, just couldn't go. No. It's a long journey. You wouldn't want to go either because obviously a lot of truck drivers had no Phoenix either and they didn't oh. really care where they went. Oh, dear me. It was oh, a, not me. a very pleasant affair somewhere. TMI, TMI, mm. Mr. B. But enough um, of that. Well, did we ever get <laughs> yeah. stopped by? We did. Of course, you have to stop with the border guards and what you do is you have a bunch of, as we called it, swag. <clears throat> Those oh, in bands yeah, will know have the, swag. the swag box, which basically is the T-shirts, the latest album, uh, whatever else you, you, know, you might yes. have that tells the border guards you're in a band and they can probably have this stuff and um, take it home and give it to their children or make some money on the black market. <clears throat> Yeah, or or you know, if they want to smooth your way through the border, which is what really we're doing it for, you know. Like, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. We would have people get on the bus, you know, the border guards in their great coats, having been standing out in the very cold, you know, East German, you know, countryside, and they get on the bus and go passports, please, and then they'd look up and down and they'd figure out what it was and they'd go t-shirts. Yes. CDs, yes. yes, and and at that point, the tour manager, if he was worth his yes. salt, otherwise, go, here, here you go. Yeah, Please, otherwise, everybody's out of their bunks, and you have to get, yes. you get dressed, yes. and they march you all off to the little checkpoint office, and make you stand there in the glaring yeah. fluorescent lights. 
Yeah. And you're freezing and cold and you're not most happy. But you no, can't sorry, say you don't yeah. say anything because all you want to do is get nicely through the border and have no problems. No problems, yes. No Nothing problems, confiscated. All your equipment intact. All of your equipment intact. Not just the ones you plug in, but your equipment. You don't want them messing with your equipment. No. Heaven forbid. Nope. We had um, we had a, one incident that didn't really involve us. It involved our crew, where one of our crew was driving a, a truck through East Germany, and he was um, he was a diabetic, and unfortunately, he didn't have you know like diabetics carry like you know a, a candy bar or something ah. just in case their sugar level yeah. goes down, and he he had a problem with his sugar level, and um, he ran off the road and crashed. Ouch. And uh, they, he woke up in an East German police station, and they were, they were first sort of kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe he's drunk or he's some kind of drug addict, and that, and you know, he had to explain, no, you know, I'm a diabetic, whatever the German word for diabetic is, and eventually he got back to uh, Berlin safe and sound, but it was it was quite you know dangerous for a while there. I mean, yeah. you know, all kinds of things could have happened. It plays a big, it's played, it played a big role in um, in my formative years, Berlin, and, and it's so yeah. it's interesting being back there now, and being back at living in Berlin. Of course, what what, what you really notice is the build quality, the quality yeah. of the building work. <laughs> you yeah. can certainly tell, you know, the East German construction. Um, ah. uh, yes, it's a little wonky at times. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it was an, it was definitely an experience. I remember the first gig we played in Berlin was in uh, SO thirty six or whatever it was called. That That's S- SO thirty six. Yeah. yeah, I was just yeah. reading and about. Yeah, so we played there, and of course, you know, we'd we'd had this journey to actually get into this little island. And I always thought that people in Berlin at that time, you know, there was a couple of million people in in West Berlin. But they couldn't leave that easily. They could get out, you know, and, and travel and stuff, but it wasn't that easy. So it was like a little island where everything had to be provided and everything had to go on. So it was quite an exciting place at that point, you know. Mm. But, I was um, just reading about um, the, the girl bands that we met, got got to know, Malaria. Um, yeah. There was a band called Kleenex. They had to change their name because of the uh, tissue paper. The ones that uh, did, it wasn't the tissue that was in the toilets you know in the service stations kleenex the right. you know the man size things um soft ones they had to change their name to lilliput no i don't really see the the connection there somehow that's like no it was just a, the, the, you know honestly there's a band in west berlin <laughs> and the colon says kleenex and kleenex proctor gamble are getting worried yeah oh so they've got to take our name and run off with it um, but they, in their um, little uh, interviews at the time or write, write-ups that you see now, they, they would say how their look came from they had to make their own clothes. They couldn't really get anything right. that they, they wanted. They, they go down to Did the, they make them with Kleenex? Did they make them with Kleenex? They, they would have probably used whatever. They, yeah, but I imagine they would have probably boycotted Kleenex for not letting them call the band the name they wanted to call it. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. But yeah. they, the, the the markets they went to are still up and running. There's still these big markets, flea markets that they have on the weekends in Berlin. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, Sounds interesting. Yeah. 
Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web, and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com. And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.